Welcome to our special edition of History Notes entitled The Story of a Holocaust Survivor Part 2. This episode features Greensboro resident and Holocaust survivor Shelley Weiner along with others. We will hear from Shelley Weiner who talks about avoiding the Nazi army by hiding in the eaves of a barn in Poland then but what is now Ukraine. We'll hear from scholars and we'll hear from many who are making efforts to commemorate the women of the Shoah, the women who were lost during the Holocaust. We'll have interviews with Victoria Milstein conducted by Rosemary Plabon and Carlos Castellanos with the Greensboro Television Network. Victoria is erecting the first and only North Carolina monument dedicated to the women of the Shoah, entitled She Wouldn't Take Off Her Boots. We'll also have educator and writer Michael Gasmany talk about his connections. I'm Rodney Dawson, and please listen to this History Notes podcast, The Story of a Holocaust Survivor Part 2. Listen with your friends and family. Listen for the bravery and strength Shelley Weiner shows us all, and the forthcoming monument She Wouldn't Take Off Her Boots. The Story of a Holocaust Survivor Part 2 is next. Germans would come and take the farmers' grain and their corn and everything for their armies. But um, one night, the farmer came up and told us that they knew we were there and they were coming to get us. And to this day, I don't know what possessed me and my cousin. But we begged our mothers not to go down quietly and just give up. And they agreed. And we knew there was a back door to the barn. And so we went into the woods and we hid in the woods that night. It was the most horrible night of my life. Um, The next morning, something must have diverted them because they stopped looking for us. They were looking for us. And the farmer stood on the roof of his house and he found us. And it wasn't safe to go back to the barn. So we went into the wheat fields. He said, you know, and the wheat was high and we stayed there for three days and the August heat without food or water and it was very it was very tough the only liquids we had was the grass we could suck on well then the, the farmer was calling us and we came out of the wheat fields and he said you know it's not safe for you to go back to the barn by that time he had created you know, dug a hole under, like, a bunk underground for his wheat and corn and everything. And he was, he was tired of the Nazis, you know, the Germans coming and taking it. He said, I'll dig another hole for you. And so he did. He dug another hole for us, covered it with branches and trees, and put straw on the ground. And that's where we were for another eight months. It was horrific. We had the lice and the rats, particularly the right, the mice and the rats were bigger there. Um, there was very little food at that point. And all we had was straw to lie on. And uh, it was, we had very little light. And it, it was very, it was very difficult. 
You're listening to part two of the story of a Holocaust survivor on History Notes. I'm your host, Rodney Dawson. Once again, that is Shelly Weiner sharing her remarkable story of how she and her small remaining family, which included her cousin, her aunt, and mother, escaped the grasp of the German army during World War II in what was then Poland and now Ukraine. We'll hear more from Shelly Weiner later in this episode. This story of courage and fortitude, strength, and faith is a universal one that can apply to many faiths and certainly many different people. For her hands, and she said they're my mother's hands, so I just love that connection. That So when you see it now, it, you don't, those aren't quite Shelly's hands yet, but when I sculpt it in the big size, you're going to see her. the hands are going to be Shelly's hands. These, which these hands? Yes, the mother is right here. So she's posing for the, for the matriarch. In honor, and it's and it's in honor of her mother, and the, and the whole monument is in honor of her mother's sacred name, Hava Sosna Wiener, and your aunt, Sonia Sosna Goralnik. Just saying their name, hearing their name, it's a part of this as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Great. Right. Super. Nope. Super. Okay, I didn't expect. I learned of this story through a local community activist and artist named Victoria Milstein. After hearing of the atrocities perpetrated onto Jewish people in Europe during the war, particularly the innocent women and children, Victoria was moved to act. She wanted people to humanize those subjected to such cruelties. She wanted folks here in the Gate City, the state of North Carolina, or anyone that can come and see it to identify and relate to them by viewing them through our own personal lens. So Mrs. Milstein, along with others, has spearheaded an effort to raise a monument dedicated to the women of the Shoah, entitled, She Wouldn't Take Off Her Boots. The Jewish placemaking sculpture will be raised in LaBauer Park in downtown Greensboro, and will be the first and right now the only such monument in the state of North Carolina. I've had an opportunity to interview Victoria Milstein a few times. I've visited her and her sister at her studio. I broke bread with her family. She's become a friend and a person that I've much admired because of her deep sense and commitment to community. But when I heard this particular interview she did about the monument she wouldn't take off her boots that was done with our good friends at the Greensboro Television Network, this particular segment on GTN's Talk City podcast was hosted by Rosemary Plybon and Carlos Castellanos. I thought to myself, this interview tells it all. I don't have to redo it. So I reached out and they allowed me to use it for our History Notes podcast. So let's go now to Rosemary and Carlos interviewing Victoria Milstein about the project, how it came about, and what it means for the city of Greensboro. There was a village in this beautiful village with a very large Jewish community, and um, the Nazis took over the village. And this particular incident um, was so hideous. There were days and days of killing. And this one particular day, they rounded up all the women and the children. And um, they took them on a march to a prison and then marched them to a beachfront. And there at the beachfront, they asked the women with their children to strip. There was a Nazi photographer who had a whip and he posed the children and the women asked them to strip and then he photographed them. It was called exhibition tourism and it was to 
proclaim the Reichs, you know, what, what they were doing to, mm-hmm. to, to bring it all over Germany so that they could see. And people would come actually to view these mass killings. And these, these women and children were photographed and then they were brought to a pit. And then, of course, they were shot. And then another Nazi kicked the corpse down into a big ditch. Mm-hmm. The thing about this is, first of all, they were women and children. We're not talking about war or, you know, soldiers. This is innocent civilians. Their only crime were that they were Jews. Not that a crime. Jews. Not, not a, a crime. crime. We're going to continue to hear from Victoria about this important work highlighting the social justice history that is no stranger to Greensboro. Victoria often connects the history of the treatment of African-Americans, civil rights, and the sit-in movement here in Greensboro. She's big on joining the humanity in all people. And I think you'll hear that come across in this History Notes podcast, as well as see it in She Wouldn't Take Off Her Boots when it's erected. But this story can be told in many ways. I found that symbolism is important. People like to mark what's important to them, particularly through art, whether it's a song, a visual, a sculpture, or written work. In fact, I met someone who did just that. After hearing his story at a porch gathering of literary lovers at a beautiful home in historic downtown Greensboro, I was feeling grown that afternoon. We were trying different exotic foods and sipping on fermented grapes, and I met this true gem and gifted writer, Michael Gaspany. He used to teach journalism at the university level, and he still writes. And he began to tell me about his former neighbors uh, who have passed now. The husband and wife were both survivors of Auschwitz and resided here in Greensboro. And his over 20-year relationship with his neighbors impacted his life, and he expressed his many fond memories of them. And we talked about them, and he shares his poem about that couple, the Mordecais. I and my wife became their neighbors on Madison Avenue around the corner from the old flagship Ham's Restaurant. And we lived adjacent to the Mordecais for about 20 years until the husband, Elias, died and the wife, Esther, about whom I'm going to read a poem, um, lived until approximately 2000 or 2001. And in your time in in knowing uh, he and his wife, how important would you say... um, their Jewish faith was to their to their lives. It was everything. I think it saved them. Both were survivors of Auschwitz. Esther maintained her faith throughout her life. I knew her much better than Elias because Elias was a was a pretty much guarded person in some ways. Esther was much more open and she and I uh, and my wife established a great friendship, and she was very close to my younger son named Max. She was a very happy woman holding a baby, and you can imagine how that would come about if she had survived actually two death camps. And what, did she share any of those stories with you about the experiences that she could remember? She did share some stories, and she did often appear in Greensboro schools to tell her story. She demonstrated the blue numbers on her arms to anyone she spoke to, and she would explain how they got there. But as for specific stories, yeah, I'll give you one. This one's pretty astonishing. She and her family were seized by the Nazis in Greece. 
and they were shipped, transported from Greece to Auschwitz. And when she got there, she and her parents were separated. Esther was, I think, a teenager at that time, fairly young teenager. And when she was separated, when the Nazi guards separated them, she was, Esther was sent to uh, one part of the camp and the rest of her family was sent to another part of the camp. And of course, she was terrified and bewildered. And she asked a woman that night, do you know where my family is? A fellow inmate. And the woman pointed to the chimney that was blowing smoke above Auschwitz and said, I'm sorry to tell you this, but that's where your parents are, in the smoke. Hadassah's Property, it's a poem in five parts. One, a little detergent. Before you went to the Hebrew home, husband in the ground, losing your mind, you begged me for help in mailing a mini box of Tide containing two pebbles of soap to Merlina, a teenage friend in Athens who'd gone up the chimney at Auschwitz along with all your family after Hitler strangled Greece. Had you forgotten she was ash or did you hope detergent could bring her back? The ads did promise miracles. We couldn't mail the soap, not even to the North Pole. The cellophane tape you applied 30 years ago was peeling and car wash coupons made insufficient postage. You were shrieking in Greek, holding you, I promised to handle the details of the mailing. This facsimile is all I can do requesting confirmation of delivery. Now let's rejoin our conversation with Victoria Milstein about why this project is so needed and why Greensboro is such a special place for it. My journey is always about Greensboro because it's really a city where I've had the opportunity to do the work that I've wanted to do and been inspired by our community and all of our leaders and people like you, Rosemary, and the work that you do. I mean, I we have the strongest women leaders in this uh, community. So um, I started this journey of having a um, Holocaust monument in North Carolina. Um, you know, the statistics are pretty grim. I think it's I, didn't, I don't want to quote numbers, but it's something like one out of 25 Americans don't know that that – no. You know, I have to get the statistics, but the, the Holocaust deniers are strong. And right. it, mm-hmm. it's a, a, a large percentage of people that don't believe the Holocaust ever happened mm-hmm. or don't and don't really know that 6 million Jews were killed and that they tried to annihilate a whole race of people is what they were trying to do. So um, Holocaust um, survivors are passing away. And we have a wonderful Holocaust survivor, Shelley Weiner. And she, mm-hmm. um, I think you met her in my studio. Oh, yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could just keep talking She's forever. an amazing, amazing woman. Mm-hmm. And, and I know that um, she is, is part of the reason that she's doing that. And in fact, part of her, in a way, is in this monument. Yes. She posed for the matrix for the woman in the middle's hand because Shelley is an example of of women who survived, who, who she, her aunt and her mother kept her alive as a three-year-old underground in a, 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 a 
I think it was a potato cellar. First they were in mm-hmm. one spot, then the other. Mm-hmm. And she has dedicated her life to Holocaust education. And this monument is in honor of her, her mother and her aunt. To a pool of shadows, once a photo of your family picnicking appeared in the morning star. Forty or so souls and you with a circle around your head identifying the only survivor. What it must have cost to wear. You told me you lurched awake each night, sure your mother lay downstairs on the carpet below the menorah. You always tried to hug the shadows whose emptiness made you gasp. In August, the carpet throbbed like a fever. What if your yearning came true and she'd been there breathing 20 years younger than her daughter? How could you explain? Shelly Weiner began this podcast series in episode one talking about intolerance and hatred. Why we need civil rights movements, Holocaust museums, placemakers to showcase history, even dark history, so that we understand that nothing just happens. Something always preceded it, caused it. When you want to know and are aware of what those causes are, you're positioned, or better positioned at least, not to repeat it and make things better. Victoria, with her words, deeds, and her work, is always asking us to recognize the humanity in people, especially those you may disagree with or not like. But we are all human, and to treat someone as not human brings about that dark history. And it's the perpetrator who brings about said dark history who ends up being dehumanized the most. Thus, the history can tend to be hidden and the lesson not learned. What these women remind us is that we all can have suffering visited upon us. And like in the sit-in movement, people can cry out and demand just treatment and scream or protest, recognize my humanity. But some don't like protests or loud proclamations. They like quietness. Well, Dr. Martin Luther King said that people often mistake quiet for peaceful. They don't want proclamations, protests, loudness. They long for things to stay quiet. So the use of art can be a way to disturb the quiet and still remain civil and humane to one another. Placemaking and art are blessings or signs, because if I were walking towards a bad place, wouldn't I want someone to disturb my quietness and say it's not peaceful? Or wouldn't I want to see a sign that says you're headed towards harm, danger, and downfall? Or would I be content walking forward with no alarms and the falsehood of feeling trouble-free? So women like her, you know, are, um, you know, their stories won't be here forever. Mm-hmm. So using a sculpture, a piece of artwork as public art, as as a, a, a I, it's placemaking. It's that art tells a story, it creates a community, and it creates a place to remember our past so that our future doesn't, is different. You got to have conversation, mm-hmm. not just and to remember, have- but to, and to take action and to feel and to, to argue sometimes and to, to learn. That's I think right. all of that, right? Mm-hmm. That, that Alan Johnson article that he wrote for the News and Record, Thank you, Alan Johnson, because that's what he spoke about, how mm-hmm. our parks and our town squares should be places where we talk about these difficult subjects and where we where we also gather together to, you know, whether it's under the Eichmann sculpt, 
netted sculpture right, yeah. in LaBauer Park to, to, for, to protest against inequality and racism in Greensboro, or it's, it's Carolyn's Garden, which will have a Holocaust memorial site where you can hear about the Holocaust, look at the, the sculpture of the women, look at it, there'll be a camera there where I'm encouraging people to look at the sculpture through this camera, that when they lift the lens, it says you are a witness. So mm-hmm. it's proactive because very often children or adults will learn about Holocaust history and they feel like, what can I do? And I say that you can see the sculpture and see them as human beings, as women, and know their story, and that's what you do. Mm-hmm. That's that's doing something. That that's That's making a difference. That's fighting against intolerance by educating yourself and educating your children. Three, a ruined arbor. In sunny weather, you and your beloved husband, Nikos, lounged under backyard maples at a wrought iron table bordered by daylilies, shaded by an umbrella. With your matching blue numbers in the buttery light, Nikos told the same death camp stories as if you'd never heard them and hadn't been there as if told often enough they might shatter. You begged him to stop feeling the other neighbors edge farther away. Even so, for you both, joy was this arbor. Now the table rusts, the umbrella has burst, the undergrowth has eaten your flowers. Wisteria breathes the bower. A few years before you left, the jungle took the yard. You refused my help. I To tell them about this idea, what would you think about having a Holocaust memorial in Greensboro? Everyone resoundingly said, this is a city of social justice. One of the things that we really want to do in this city is to highlight injustice inhumanity and our struggle for civil rights in this city mm-hmm. and how it connects, how we're all the same human beings. So as I as I spoke to leaders and went around, everyone was very enthusiastic. So we set up an ad hoc committee of other leaders to kind of look at the idea. It was said, yes, let's go find a location in our parks. And we went to different uh, locations in the downtown area. And God bless Greensboro, North Carolina. They um, decided that LeBauer Park, Carolyn LeBauer, who who gave the money for that park has a special little garden called Carolyn's Garden and that that would be a wonderful spot for this memorial and I can't even tell you what that says about who our city is Mm -hmm. that says so much about Greensboro and so it went so we that that was the choice of the location. Then it went to city council. Yep, spring of 2020, I think. Was it that long ago? Yeah. And then <laughs> <laughs> I know because well, you know, these things. If you if you if you it takes read, a while. Yeah, yeah, if you read about like Rodin and some of these great sculptors that I only you know that inspire me is they took them 10 years to do this. It took them 15 years, and then and then they you know then they had all kinds of problems. Of course. So mm-hmm. it, it, it's a big project, and mm-hmm. it, and then we had to raise funds. So. Um, I think that's probably one of yeah, your questions. Yeah, that, that yeah. That's the next thing, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you recently received a word from the state that they'd be funding this project? Yeah, so not funding the whole project. It is a large project. Okay. It is a bronze sculpture of five. Five, yeah. <laughs> you can tell I'm good with numbers. Five <laughs> women and also the camera, which is the education part, as well as as you go around the, 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 the sculpture, it'll be a self-guided tour. So there will be locations where there'll be a QR code and you'll hear about 
what is the Holocaust. You'll hear about these women of Lapisia. You'll hear Nancy Hoffman's story of her husband, Jack, who was in the kinder transport. You'll hear Sylvia Weiner's story in her about her mother, Ava, who kept her alive. You'll also hear a story about John Withers' father, John Withers Sr., who was a, a an African-American army lieutenant in a I think he was a lieutenant. He was, right? From Greensboro. From Greensboro, mm-hmm. who liberated Dachau, one of the camps, saw these survivors, particularly a 16- and a 17-year-old mm-hmm. boy, and said in his book, you have to read his book, they're, they're like slaves. They're, mm-hmm. they're like, and he related to them, and his regiment adopted these two Holocaust survivors for a year. Which was very dangerous. Which is dangerous against the rules. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. You read the book. I mean, the story, so his story will be also around the, um, he was in town last week around the monuments. You can hear his story too. So part of the money that we were raising is also for education mm-hmm. and to make sure that most of it's, it's raised to actually build the sculpture because it's, it's huge. So, um, we're, so the city of, uh, so the John Hardister, uh, put out a bipartisan bill with, um, uh, Ashton he, Clemens, Ashton yeah. Clemens mm-hmm. and Michael Garrett. Mm-hmm. And it was, um, accepted and John worked really hard. I mean, he's amazing. Um, and the, the city, the, um, state Straight. of North Carolina is giving our, us, the women of the uh, Shoah, uh, who the nonprofit that's connected with the sculpture, uh, the money for me to part of the building. So they're giving us two hundred and fifty thousand. That's exciting, which wow. is incredible. Mm-hmm. Again, look at North Carolina. Look at Greensboro. Look at our leaders. I mean, I think it just it says a lot because look at all the sculptures that that we need to take down. Mm-hmm. So here we're putting up something that is so positive. So when yeah. will we see it? That's the big question, right? Yes, when we see it. So, you know, it's a lot of figures. Hopefully, it'll go to the foundry this summer. I'm using the North Carolina Foundry, which is in Seagrove. Um, and it's this incredible, um, prestigious foundry that's like 45 minutes from where I live, which is like another miracle. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then it goes to the foundry. And they have they have a schedule. So, you know, with COVID and everything that's happening, they might have it may take them up to a year. Oh, wow. But yeah, but let's hope less. And then um, it gets installed with the QR codes and the camera all in uh, that little petite little area in a very petite way. It's not a... It, it's it's going to be intimate. It'll so be intimate. It's a space for uh, for doing, for growing, exactly. for learning, you know. And the sculpture itself is larger than life-size, but in an outdoor setting, it's going to feel more like life-size mm-hmm. because with sculpture, if you do it too small, they look like dolls, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and, and this had to have the gravitas of the, of what was happening yeah. that day. You know, it'll be a thing of beauty in terms of these women were beautiful women and you're going to see these, you know, but so it, it will be a thing of beauty, but it will also be a thing, you know, a, a piece of artwork that you're going to want to stop and say, what's this and mm-hmm. read about it. Hopefully. For a throne, One April morning, you and Nico strolled down the street, each holding an arm of a lawn chair plucked from a neighbor's refuse. The backrest was shredded, exposing aluminum ribs. The find disappeared inside the garage till Nico's died. Then you placed the chair among gray leaves at the back fence facing your kitchen window. Its hungry look chilled me until the metal blazed in dusk's glare. You had chosen the spot with care. I saw Nico's 
ruling there. A few years later, kudzu choked the chair and sealed your back door. You didn't speak of Nikos anymore. Five, an accusation. So many autumns after Nikos died, we raked leaves in our front yards, teasing back and forth to make time fly. You're invited to the leaf raker's ball, I called. You replied, no, my friend, the band plays here. Come dance. This morning, as I raked, your echo drove me to an accusation you had too much faith to make. If God cannot deliver the soap, spin shadows into your mother, place you and Nikos on a throne, crowned by an arbor of stars, then what was any breathing for? Most of all, first breath, first tide. This is Rodney Dawson. Of course, this is History Notes, the story of the Holocaust survivor. We're coming to the end of part two. We're going to get near the end and close out with Shelley Weiner. And she's sharing her story about the turmoil she went through and the heartache and overcoming challenges. And yet she made it through. And though this journey started halfway across the world in what is now Ukraine, then it was Poland, she lives here. Greensboro has a strong history. I've often called it the beacon of social justice. We've been pushed. We've had to be pushed by well-intentioned folks to meet these challenges. And though it's not happened every time, we have met them. And it's because there's been a will to meet it. So, of course, she lives here. You know, the war was not over. And uh, my, mother, my aunt and my mother went into town. And our house was still standing. And so the next day, the farmer took me and my cousin, covered us with uh, straw, and took us into town to meet our mothers. It was the first time I had been, you know, outside. It was, it had snowed, and the, the light really blinded me. We moved back into our house, and the thing was that afterwards, I mean, there were still bombings going on, because our town was a railroad, had a railroad that, you know, uh, soldiers were, were using back and forth. And for nine months, it, it continued with the bombing. And we were very fortunate. Uh, our parents decided, our mothers, that uh, they would take us to a smaller town where the bombing wasn't so severe. And we left our town. The next day, a bomb fell on our house. We were very And um, I had never mentioned my father so far. This part of the Ukraine, Pol- it was Poland when I was born, and it was Poland, was going back and forth between all Russia and Germany. In 1939, uh, 
Hitler and Stalin had made a pact until Hitler decided to invade Russia. So my father was taken in 1939 and sent to Siberia. But then when the war got heated up, they took the men who were still able and put them in the army. So my father fought in the Russian army. We had no idea where he was or what had happened to him. And so um, in 1945, the war was over. And Stalin said that anybody who was a Polish citizen could go to Poland. One of my mother's brothers had also been sent away. He came back and he was, he was very sick. But he and my mother, my mother had been very harassed by the communists while we were living in Ravna. So she wanted to leave. She wanted to get out of there. So anyway, we went to Poland. And um, my mother and my uncle opened up a little cafe. And <laughs> this is funny. I didn't want to go to school. I would have been in second grade because I had gone to first grade in Russia. It's an entirely different alphabet. So they left me with a gypsy lady and I loved it. <laughs> so anyway, what happened was one day there was a knock on the door and my father was there. It was amazing. Um, he had survived the war. He had been in some horrible battles. And he was at the Battle of, if you've ever heard of Leningrad, which is now St. Petersburg, where they starved the town. At any rate, what happened in Poland after the war is that some of the survivors from the concentration camps, from partisans, would come back to their homes in Poland and try to reclaim them. Well, the Polish citizens were very anti-Semitic, and they started a pogrom, which is an organized group, and they killed 60 Jews in this one uh, town. And so my parents were very nervous about that, and so we left Poland and made our way to Germany, to the American zone. Army barracks, German army barracks, and it was called a displaced person camp. Those were camps for people who did not have a country, and their goal was for us to find a country that would take us in. Um, there was very little education. I never, I never really went to school. Only if there was a teacher, there would be school. We lived in one room. Uh, there was a, a bath, you know, for the whole community. There was one bathroom that was at the end of the barrack. But it was freedom. It was the first time in my life that I had a friend and that I had a toy. I had three uncles in Philadelphia. 
in New York. And my last name is Wiener, before I got married, and <laughs> married a Wiener. <laughs> so, <clears throat> he went to the Red Cross, he got their telephone books, and the, my father could write, I don't know, five, seven languages, speak them all. And they, uh, Polish alphabet is the same, is the, very similar to the English alphabet. And so he wrote letters to all the wieners in Philadelphia and New York. And there were quite a few. There was Jacob, Lewis, and Abraham. And he wrote in Yiddish, but with the Polish, Polish alphabet. We didn't know English. And so one of the uncles in Philadelphia got the letter and said, this is my nephew, because he said, you know, things that you would understand. They were related. And um, he took, he, he brought us over. Now, you know, it wasn't easy to come to America right after the war. And so, you know, they had to guarantee that we have employment, a place to live, that we wouldn't be uh, a ward of the state and so on. Anyway, it took about a year. And in 1949, on Columbus Day, we arrived in the United States. I saw the Statue of Liberty. I can still see it now. But we couldn't get off the boat. It was a holiday here. So anyway, we, uh, that's how we got to the United States. My father's cousin put me in the seventh grade. I spoke no English. My parents spoke no English. My father worked for 50 cents an hour on the subway. My mother worked in a factory that she cried every day because she couldn't understand English and she thought people were laughing at her. But we all love America. I think still this is one of the greatest countries in the world. And my parents made a life for themselves. I have been very fortunate. Now you need to hear about my cousin, okay, who was in hiding with me. Is it okay? We lost touch with her. They decided to stay in Russia. We had no idea where they were living or anything. So my mother, you know, they could have been dead. Any, anyway, in the late 60s, my mother was walking on the street in Tel Aviv, Israel. A man recognized her. He came over to her and he says, I just saw your sister and I know where she lives. Well, we, my mother was amazed. She started writing to her. In 1974, my mother and I went to St. Petersburg. We met my cousin and my aunt and an uncle who had survived. And it was amazing, amazing, amazing. So we told them, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a good time for Jews in the Soviet Union then. But if they ever wanted to leave, we would help them. And in 1980, brought them over to the United States. Wow. That's amazing. And that's my story. <laughs>
And a wonderful story it is. The story of a Holocaust survivor. There was part one, and we just listened to part two. You can also view it on the Greensboro History Museum YouTube channel and see the facial expressions as they tell this powerful story. Thank you for listening. This has been History Notes.